What companies deserve your hard-earned dollar? Which would you want to work for? How can you know if they share your values? Just ask us. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks who really means business in supporting workers, customers, communities, the environment, and shareholders. We measure progress, track success, and help them be better. When you see the Just Capital seal, you know what's real because just business is better business. Visit justcapital.com to learn who makes your dollar count. The following is intended solely for the use of those with a sense of adventure. I'm shaking the dust of this town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. This is Travel with Hawkeye. Here's your host, Mark Hawkeye Lewis. So excited to kick off season four of Travel with Hawkeye. And if you are a history buff and if you are a fan of World War II history in particular, and if you have traveled to different sites like Normandy so forth to see these historic sites, then this book that I recently uncovered is for you. It's called The Hidden Places of World War II, The Extraordinary Sites Where History Was Made During the War That Saved Civilization. And our guest today is the author of that book, Jerome O'Connor. Jerome, uh, when I saw your book, I immediately acquired it. Can I tell you why I'm so interested in this? I want to know, yes. So when I was in high school, I worked at a summer camp in Hawaii, and we discovered that the summer camp used to be an observation post during World War II, and we discovered tons of bunkers. We discovered a trash dump where we all got all these old bottles that we all collected. And ever since then, I've been just fascinated about places that have been abandoned that were used during World War II. And basically, that's what your book is about. It's called The Hidden Places of World War II. Tell me about, uh, first of all, how you got uh, started on this project. Well, the project dates for about 52 years, and it took me a long time to assemble previous features that I wrote for newspapers and history enthusiast magazines into a book and then find other places. Now, the reason why I take up where others leave off is that I go back to origins, to where great events began. I don't start at the invasion on June the 6th, 1944. We all know that. I go back to how it originated and where. Where was the decision made? At Southwark House in Portsmouth, England, in a mansion that still stands, that has the same floor-to-ceiling plywood map that Eisenhower and his admirals and generals looked at to make what I refer to in the hidden places of World War II as the decision of the century. So, in summary, I connect the past with the present, World War II, the most important war in history, and I go to each of the places that exist that are real, many that can be entered, I find the people associated with them, and then I bring it up to the present day. Well, obviously, this is a, a travel podcast, so we're definitely interested in places that people can visit. But also, you know what, since we're on this topic, let's just go full bore into it and uh, places that they cannot. But there's a lot of places, submarine bases, places that uh, were used by Eisenhower that we just talked about, uh, battlefields and so forth, that are mentioned in the book that, uh, as you said, are hidden places. What in your, in, in, your, in your criteria, what makes it a hidden place? Is it something that time has forgotten about? Because, like, Nuremberg is on here. People know about Nuremberg. But, I mean, have they forgotten about it? Well, using Nuremberg as an example, uh, Nuremberg is one of the major cities in Germany and easily reached from anywhere. 
which is why Hitler had his rallies in Nuremberg. And what most folks who follow history don't know is that there is a vast rally ground outside of Nuremberg, not too far outside of Nuremberg, reached by tram. And this rally ground is where Hitler glorified his demonic intentions with uh, stadiums, with marching grounds, uh, with uh, uh, a huge uh, building, an amphitheater that was 40% built. And I'm from Chicago. Collectively, the ruins are about three times the size of what we call the loop, the heart of downtown Chicago. So Nuremberg is, is one of many examples. Other historians tended to overlook these places or never knew they existed, but they do. Now, if I were to go to Nuremberg and I, I saw where the rallies were held, what would it look like today where those rallies were held? Well, you would first go into what's called a documentation center. We'd call it a museum. And uh, here, as in other documentation centers in Germany, they essentially atone for their sins of the past with exhibits. So after seeing these very impressive exhibits, you would then walk into this enormous meeting ground that was 40% built by slave labor intended to house 50,000 attendees at annual congresses. And you can see for yourself what he intended to do. Then you continue the walk and see another enormous stadium, including a rostrum projecting into the rally grounds themselves where Hitler addressed his adoring faithful. And then another part of the rally grounds has about uh, two-thirds of a mile of granite paving. And on the granite paving, there are irregular marks where the troops would uh, take precision steps thick enough for tanks to go from one end to the other. So here in Nuremberg alone, and it's part of a chapter in the book called Ruins of the Reich, here is proof positive of Hitler's intentions. But there's so many other examples of places that remain today. I would say the U-boat bases uh, would be a tremendous example that uh, your listeners could easily visit because nobody knows about them, but they're there and they look as if they could become operational in a short period of time. And oh. I've been there. Okay, now these U-boat bases, they're actually uh, in France, correct? Yes, they are in France on the Brittany coast along the Bay of Biscay, which is an inlet from the Atlantic Ocean. So after the French surrendered very quickly... In 1940, Hitler took over occupied France and established the U-boat bases and built them over a period of about 18 months to become indestructible throughout the war. Thousands of sorties by mostly the Americans, B-17s and B-24s, also British Lancasters, failed to do anything more but dent the seven-layered roofs, and the times I was there, I made four visits to two of the five bases. Nobody was there. Just walk in, walk around, 
and realize what Hitler's intentions were to dominate the world. Okay, let me ask you about, I, I, I gotta learn more about these submarine bases, because first of all, the first question I have is, is this, you know, these bases today, are they just something that you wander upon? Are they fenced off? Are they some type of like attraction where, you know, there's a museum? Or is there any marker that indicates what these were? Or did you just discover what they were? I know that's all like six questions I asked at once, but I'm fascinated by this. Well, they're all good questions because they're questions that uh, your listeners would ask and my readers would have asked. And the answer to everything that you've said is that no, 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 and no. You have to find them for yourself. There are no markers or indicators, but they're not difficult to find. From Paris, for example, a train from central Paris to the town of Lorient, as an example, would uh, reveal the bases to be just outside the center of town. A rental car is necessary, but then once you get to that base in particular, you just walk in, and it, there they are. It's and just wide open. No, it's just wide open. There, and there's no marker to tell you what there is. You just, as a historian, already knew what was what to expect. I, I knew as a historian what to expect. I read up on it. I studied uh, about it. I wrote about it for the U.S. Naval Institute, and uh, they gave me their Author of the Year Award for revealing their existence, and most especially how the seven-layered roof was built. And you'll read it yourself. You'll see my own photos, how the base was built to deflect penetrating bomb damage and where the seven layers were complete at the five bases, no bomb ever penetrated. So has anybody used that design since? Because obviously it worked, uh, I mean, brilliantly. Uh, has, has anybody decided to re replicate that in any modern army? No, uh, because it's a different kind of uh, warfare today. Uh, kinetic uh, uh, bombs are not... Uh, uh, necessary today. There are different armaments that are used, so it wouldn't be built today. There are sub-bases today, but they're built differently. The Germans are great engineers, and they certainly use their skills in uh, building these bases. And uh, from a, a distance, a short distance, you look at them and think, my gosh, they could be used tomorrow. Of course, going inside, they're essentially derelict, although there are indications where the Germans would mark uh, the right, uh, their initials and uh, put uh, caricatures and other information of interest to the modern-day historian. So I connect the past with the present. I try to make history live, and uh, that's what makes what I do exciting. History is alive as far as I'm concerned. Let me ask you this question. The towns that these two U-boat uh, bases are in, are the, do the townspeople, I mean, because, I mean, this, you know, there's, that, that's World War II is generations ago. Are they aware of what's in their town, the most, most of the town folk? To take two towns as examples, uh, Lorient and uh, Saint-Nazaire, the towns were totally destroyed by the Allies in their attempts to destroy the bases, which, as I said, failed. So the 
uh, crude aiming devices, including the Norden bomb site, which is discussed in the book as well, they failed to really be accurate uh, within, uh, oh, anything less than a half of a mile. So both towns were destroyed. The people knew uh, about the building of the bases. In fact, many of them helped to build bases. France was occupied under control of the Nazis, and they certainly knew them. All right. Let me ask you this question. Also in the book, there's a, and correct me if I've got this wrong, um, a mansion that was used in in England to house uh, German generals who were uh, captured during the war, and they lived a rather luxurious existence. Am I correct in retelling that? Yes. uh, The mansion is called Trent Park, and that is also easily located by tube or underground from central London. And I was there on the very last day when it was open as a school, a college, the very last day. And they closed it, and it is being converted into condominiums. In the mansion. <laughs> That's hilarious. Of all, of all ironic things. Uh-huh. Uh, enormous grounds that are a park called Trent Park. And in the heart of the park, there was and is a mansion owned by the Sassoon family, who are noted today for uh, beauty products. Yes, yes, Vidal Sassoon, yes. Vidal Sassoon, exactly, owned by his family. Well, many uh, British nobility and those of uh, rank and prestige gave their mansions to the government for use during the war. In fact, in my chapter on the 8th Air Force, the mansions that were used as headquarters for the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Divisions stand today. But anyhow, Trent Park is where 59 captured Nazi generals were kept in luxurious conditions, by which I mean they had free run of the house almost, and they could wear their uniforms with medals, polished boots. I know this because photos are in the book showing them. Uh They were served plated meals by liveried servants. They had their own bar. They could go on tours, escorted very carefully, of course. They knew they were in confinement. Here's what makes it interesting. Every word they spoke (laughs) was being taken down uh, by listeners in the basement on recording equipment furnished by RCA in America. Fascinating. They would, uh, let's say, gather around a fireplace, a warm fire, and they would exchange notes about this battle that you were in, General. Why did you do this, and why did you do that? And the British also seeded the entourage with uh, generals and admirals from uh, different branches of the service. So let's say a U-boat captain, one of the few U-boat captains who survived, is talking with a Luftwaffe general. The general says, uh, very interesting what, what happened to the U-boat. So many were sunk. Uh, tell me, how did this happen? And perhaps the operating depth of U-boats would be discovered. Ah, Important information 
for U.S. destroyers to know so that depth charges could be set for, let's say, 400 feet, which might have been their typical operating depth. So information such as this was exchanged back and forth. And people have asked me, well, didn't they know that something was going on? And I would have to say, yes, they did know, but kind of in the realm of loose lips sink ships. After a while, when they're at ease, uh, they have free reign of the house, except for the basement where the listeners were taking down every word. After a while, they just started talking. And uh, what was learned uh, that is also of interest is that everybody knew what was happening to the Jews. They would say, oh, I heard this, this, and this, but I never believed it. So-and-so said this, but oh, well, they did terrible things. They all knew. Everybody knew about it. Everybody in Germany knew that something was happening to the Jews. So this was learned also at Trent Park, which, by the way, can be seen today, the statuary, the lakes, the outdoor tennis court built by the Sassoon family can't enter the mansion because it's being converted into condos. But nonetheless, with the book as a kind of a guidepost, it is possible to imagine what took place in this mansion in London. Speaking of uh, places in England uh, that were used for something very special during the war, there's a place called uh, Bletchley Park. And can you explain what that is, what was done there, and uh, what is there today? Bletchley Park, which I learned about from a colleague. I was in the travel business, Mark, for many years. I owned a travel company in Chicago. I met with agents in different parts of the world, and I have been writing as a sideline articles about the war, the most important event, one of the three most important events in American history. So I had been writing about the war, and they said, uh, uh, Jerry, do you know about uh, Bletchley Park? No. Well, here, my wife's sitting next to us at dinner. She worked at Bletchley Park. Bletchley Park is where up to 12,000 mostly women codebreakers revealed the second most important secret of the war. The first being the atomic bomb. The second was what was called the ultra secret. The ultra secret was the breaking and entering into the Enigma cipher. And the Enigma cipher was the crude electromechanical cipher machine used by the entire German armed forces in a kind of an arrogant confidence that it could not be broken. But it was broken. Alan Turing, a name that will be familiar to many, was one of the principal code breakers. So I found all the decaying huts, they called them huts, buildings, that still stand to this day. So when I first learned about it, 1997, empty, nobody there. I wrote about it for a major magazine. I went back two years ago. There were 40 busloads of people before noon, and now it's a museum easily seen. Just take a train. It's 65 miles 
from London, walk across the street from the train station at Bletchley Park, and the rusting barbed wire begins there. And then you enter and see the decaying huts and a mansion, which can be entered, which is where they met for lunch and meetings. So these are places that history overlooked. But when I wrote the book, because of the 75th anniversary of the end of the war, which is upon us, Uh the most important war in history, that's why I wrote the book. When I wrote the book, I, I I said to myself, I want to somehow honor the 16 million young men and 350,000 young women, non-combatants, of course, who fought in history's greatest war while they are still alive. We have three and a half to four percent remaining with us. Yeah, very few. Yeah, somebody, you know, somebody who fought in the war, your grandparents, your neighbors, people down the street. Everybody knows somebody. If, if they're alive or not alive, we all know somebody. So I wanted to honor what our forefathers did for us and what they did. They saved civilization. They saved our democracy. And we are the beneficiaries of that 75 years later. Our nation today benefits from what they did then, and we can never thank them enough. And that's why I wrote The Hidden Places of World War II, to honor the greatest generation. Well, it's definitely a different take. There's a lot of great books on World War II about the battles and the people, uh, but it's definitely a different take. Uh, I've never seen a book like this about some of the places that you can still visit. Um, i I got to ask you one, one more question before I let you go, and I so appreciate your time because I'm fascinated by this. Uh, can you tell me what the Norden bombsite is? And you have a chapter on that because this is I always hear that, that mentioned as a crucial piece of World War II history. Well, the Norden bombsite was reputedly the most important precision bomb-aiming device that uh, we had. And it was invented by a Swedish immigrant named Carl Norden. And it was uh, used uh, by um, all the major bombers and the minor bombers, but particularly B-17s and B-24s as a a way of uh, pinpointing bombing. So in my chapter, I refer to the bombsite as a myth because the bombsite didn't really function as intended. But it was the major aiming device. It used uh, motors and mirrors, and uh, as described in the chapter, I hope with uh, simplicity, it enabled a navigator to be able to constantly focus on the target so that the target didn't move, the bomb site kept the target always in focus so that when he reached what was called the initial aiming point, then the bombers had to go straight ahead to the target. He knew when to drop the munitions, but it just didn't work as intended. So rather than, let's say, a bombing Uh, BMW works, they made uh, engines uh, for tanks and automobiles during the war. (laughs) Instead, they flattened all of Hamburg. (laughs) So it it, it turned out to be a myth. But another one of those uh, 
interesting things that we we take for granted. Either we we know that the Norden bomb site exists, and we think, oh, great, it worked, but it really didn't work. Yet uh, they did perfect it, and it was used even in the Vietnam War, greatly perfected from World War II. Well, it's a fascinating book. I can't wait to, like I said, I, I was hoping to get this book uh, before our interview, and unfortunately I did not. And I usually like to read a book before I, we talk about it on the show, but I just, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to talk to you, and, and I wanted to do a podcast on it and share it with folks as the book came out. Uh, just a, an incredible pl- book. It's called The Hidden Places of World War II. Jerome, really appreciate your time, the work you put into this, the different take on World War II, and keep discovering uh, hidden places. Are there places in that you did not or were not able to add to the book that might be in a sequel or uh, might be in an article in the near future? Well, if there are, I don't want to write about it because it took me 52 years <laughs> to come up with everything that's in the book and a great deal of research. So please don't make me write another book. I think I said everything. And even the most astute historian, this book is meant for the person who thinks he or she knows everything there is to know about the war and will read it and say, gosh, really? I never knew that. So this is a once-only effort. By the way, it's also my first book. Man, Jerome, I love that. I, you know what? You're one of the few people who's ever written a book who said, you know what, this is it. Enjoy it because I'm not going to do it again. I love that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. Jerome, thank you so much and uh, continued success on, on your endeavors. Talk, I a pleasure to talk to you. Goodbye now. Jerome O'Connor, the book The Hidden Places of World War II, The Extraordinary Sites Where History Was Made During the War That Saved civilization. Read that because Jerome isn't going to write another one. I'm Mark Hawkeye Lewis. You've been listening to the Travel with Hawkeye podcast. Remember, the world is out there. Your adventure awaits.